Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com The Economist Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ore Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mexico strictly limits its president to one six-year term, and Andres Manuel López Obrador is getting towards the end of his. In the first of our week-long series on democracy around the world, we ask why he will loom so large in and after June's election. And do you prefer to work in silence? Or like many others, do you pop your headphones on and look for an ambient music playlist to be the soundtrack to your day? It turns out that the white noise could help you be more productive. First up, though. As the new year begins, it's worth taking stock of 2023, a year that saw some surprising election results. A todos los argentinos que hoy comienza el fin de la decadencia argentina. In Argentina, the chainsaw-wielding Javier Milei swept to power following a year of economic devastation in the country. This is the happiest day um, of my life so far in politics. We, we became the number one party by far. I mean, it's what After more than 20 years in parliament, the far-right Eurosceptic Geert Wilders won a plurality of votes in the Dutch general election. And in Poland, voters turned towards the EU by coming out in droves for Donald Tusk, the former president of the European Council. But while 2023 was a big year, 2024 is set to be even bigger. And the intelligence is on hand to help you make sense of it all. The remarkable thing about 2024 is that more people uh, than ever in the whole history of the world will have the chance to vote. Something like 4 billion of them in 76 countries. That is a remarkable achievement. Ed Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. At the beginning of the 20th century, hardly anyone voted anywhere. It was really quite unusual. And even in countries where you could vote, not everybody could vote. But I'm afraid there's a sting in the tail here, which is that although there are lots of elections, not all those elections are fair. Tell me a little bit more about that sting in the tail. Well, in some ways, it's the tribute that vice pays to virtue. The idea that people like to be given the chance to vote and that autocrats have understood that giving people a chance to vote is a source of legitimacy for them. But people have learnt how to force elections. And if you look at our sister organisation, the Economist Intelligence Unit, which looks at countries and grades them by the quality of their democracy, of 71 countries that are going for votes, 
And only 43 does it think there'll be really fully free and fair elections. So, Ed, let's start with some of the biggest elections. In 2024, of the 10 largest countries by population, eight of them will hold elections. And of that eight, four will neither be fully free nor fair. I mean, nobody is expecting Vladimir Putin to lose the election in Russia. And same is true in Bangladesh, where Sheikh Hasina will win because the opposition has boycotted the polls because they're really not allowed to compete fairly in the political system. There's also likely to be no change in Mexico, where Claudia Scheinbaum of the Morena coalition is likely to lead. And Pakistan, well, I'm actually not sure that Pakistan's poll will actually go ahead in February. It's looking a bit uncertain there, partly because the main opposition leader, Imran Khan, is in jail, partly because there's violence. So those are the four big ones where there's unlikely to be a change. In the United States, Brazil, Indonesia and India, the other four, the elections will actually be contested. But it's interesting that in our rankings, the EIU classifies all of them as flawed democracies. And that includes, perhaps surprisingly, the United States, which it criticises for its electoral process and the functioning of government and political participation and culture. It doesn't mean that the US is like Russia, but it does mean that there are problems with the way the US voting system and participation work. And so what can we expect in these races? Well, all right, let's start with Indonesia, which has got a vote in February. And there, Jokowi, the president, had his two terms and there's going to be new candidates. And the person who the polls say is most likely to win is Prabowo Subianto, who's the defence minister at the moment. And there's a kind of whiff of nepotism here because Jokowi's oldest son, Gibran Rakabuming is running as his vice presidential candidate. Then India, the world's biggest democracy, there it's looking very, very likely that Narendra Modi will be re-elected again as prime minister. And we had a kind of test of sentiment when the BJP did particularly well in regional elections there in Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh and Chhattisgarh. But of course, it's not a perfect democracy and the BJP really has a powerful election machine and pretty much runs politics no holds barred. Then the third big place is Brazil. These are just municipal elections, so they're more interesting as a sign of sentiment in Brazil, which, if you remember, had a very close and tightly fought election between the right under Jair Bolsonaro and uh, Lula on the left, which Lula won. And then lastly, we have the big one, and that's the US in November, as usual, the House and a third of the Senate up for grabs. What people will really be watching is the presidential election. So many of the things that we've written about and reflected on will be affected by whether, as expected, it's Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, and whether it's actually a Trump victory. So that covers some of the largest, most populous democracies. Are there any other elections that we should look out for? Yeah, there are actually plenty of them. It's going to be a very interesting year. It starts with Taiwan. And the thing about Taiwanese elections is that they're watched incredibly closely by China. Quite a lot depends on that. And that's something that our podcast, Drumtown, will be following closely. Then we've got these elections in South Africa, which also I think will be really interesting to watch. And that's because gradually over the past few election cycles, 
the ruling party, the ANC, has been losing seats and vote share and influence. And there's just terrible disillusionment with the rule of the ANC. Ramaphosa will stand again. He's the current president. And so kind of the question there is, is this the election that signals change? Probably not, but it's really preparing for something earth-shattering, I think, when the ANC finally loses power. So, Ed, we've touched on elections across the US, Asia, Latin America and Africa. But how about Europe? Well, Europe's got parliamentary elections. And it'll be interesting to see whether the big trend in European politics, which is the clear battle lines between what would have once been considered excessively populist and right-wing parties versus the more centrist parties, whether the parliament reflects the shift in those battle lines. So that'll be interesting. And then, of course, you mustn't forget Britain. Rishi Sunak is very likely to go to the polls in 2024. And I think everybody in this country anyway believes that that'll be the end of the Conservative Party after 14 years in power. And then the other thing to watch, I think, is Ukraine. In theory, there was due to be an election this year in 2024. And I think that's looking increasingly doubtful that uh, Vladimir Zelensky will want to go to the polls or will feel under pressure to go to the polls. Having said that, politics in Ukraine has really begun to open up again. And so I think that means there's quite a kind of complex um, landscape there that Zelensky will have to navigate. There are signs that he's begun to fall out with some other politicians and some of the military staff. So that one will be worth watching very closely too. So, Ed, you've taken us to every continent and painted a somewhat depressing picture of some 2024 elections. But are there any positives to glean from the less competitive races? Takeaways to keep us optimistic over the coming year? The other thing always to remember about elections is that they throw up surprises. So some of the things that haven't featured on our list yet will do so, but a feature in our coverage, both in the intelligence and in the paper, because something surprising happens, something we hadn't foreseen takes place. That is, I think, one thing to bear in mind about this, that autocrats try and manage elections and they try and control the process. But once they've accepted the principle of elections, then they are to some extent opening themselves up to surprises. I think that's a point not to be lost, that elections are not worthless just because they are maybe biased in favour of one of the ruling party, they still have some value and some hope. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure as always. All through this week, we're going to be looking more closely at some of the elections that Edward told us about, starting with Mexico's in June. There are a record number of registered voters, a record number of political positions up for grabs, and two main presidential candidates. Both are women. Meaning the country is destined to have its first female president. And yet the election will happen in the shadow of one man. Mexico's current president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, often called AMLO, is a towering figure behind these upcoming elections. Sarah Burke is The Economist's Mexico City bureau chief. He has been a very polarizing president, and he's thrown his support behind one of his candidates from his party. And the other, from the opposition party, is essentially opposing everything he stands for. 
So help me understand why it is he is such a big figure, as you say, in these elections. AMLO was elected in 2018. He was part of a wave of populism that we saw across the Americas and elsewhere in the last few years. And he turned Mexican politics on its head. Prior to that, two main parties, the PRI and the PAN, had ruled Mexico. And he had a newish party called Morena that he had founded. It's a populist party bringing together all sorts of people from across the ideological spectrum, but it uses left-wing rhetoric. He said he'd fight corruption and help the poor. And he came into office with huge support and huge government majorities. He can't run again because Mexican presidents serve one six-year term only. Despite an internal process in which Morena selected its candidate for the presidency, he essentially chose who it would be. And so really, this whole election feels somewhat like a referendum on his presidency. And how do you think that referendum is going to play out? How will people vote on his presidency? He remains extremely popular. His approval rating hovers around 60%, sometimes above. And we have to understand that there's a reason for that. For many Mexicans, he represents them, much more than the past governments who were seen as elite and out of touch and corrupt. And he has also made life better for poor people insofar as he's reduced poverty through social handouts and by raising the minimum wage. But beyond that, really, he hasn't had much policy success at all, especially on the basics. And so a lot of the middle class and the elites are very alienated from him. To give a few examples, security has got worse. I mean, murders are down, but in general, the spread of drugs gangs has increased. Education and healthcare are both a mess. His policy choices usually seem guided by scrapping whatever people did before and not necessarily putting anything better in place. So that includes a healthcare program he scrapped that used to reach informal workers, and now millions of Mexicans do not have access to healthcare. He's also backed fossil fuels and spent billions on pet infrastructure projects. And perhaps the most worrying of all, for some people at least, is that he's got an anti-democratic streak to him. What do you mean by that? So he doesn't really like checks and balances. He likes to get things done quickly. So because he's in a rush to do things, he's given more power to the army. And obviously that means a lack of transparency because there's lots of national security laws covering them. He's tried to gut the agency that oversees elections in Mexico. He's also tried to reform the Supreme Court to increase his power by electing judges. And he's just said he will introduce a bill before he leaves office to try to disappear a raft of agencies. And those include the INAI, which is the body that guarantees transparency and access to information in Mexico. Okay, but he's not the one really on the ballot. Tell me about his sort of handpicked successor that you mentioned. The person on the ballot will be Claudia Sheinbaum, who is the former mayor, which is equivalent to a state governorship of Mexico City until June this year, when she stepped down to run for the candidacy. Y quiero decirles algo para culminar. Vamos a ganar el 2024. And she's very much his protégé. She's been very close to him for years and he's thrown his weight entirely behind her and obviously with that, the weight of the state. Now, I spoke earlier about AMLO looming large over these elections and it's clear he's doing that with Mishaindam. But you can see his influence in the other candidate who's running too. How so? So her name is Sochik Galvez, and she's a former senator and mayor of borough of Mexico City. Viva 
She's very interesting. She's outspoken. She has an Indigenous background. But she got the attention that propelled her to run and win the race to be the opposition's candidate, in large part because of the president. He started attacking her in his morning news conferences, and that raised her profile. Creo que cometieron un error porque quisieron engañar. O sea, es que no se puede ya. And her platform really is very anti-AMLO. I mean, when you talk to her, a lot of the chat isn't necessarily putting forward positive proposals, but criticizing what this government has done. Now, that's partly because all the major political parties in Mexico formed an opposition together in an attempt to get rid of AMLO. It also associates her with the old discredited parties, much as she's seen as a mold breaker. So what's your sense for which way this election is going to go then? Well, the polls so far suggest that Ms. Sheinbaum will very likely win, partly because the president's so popular and partly the party and partly because of the social handouts. And then the million-dollar question, which everyone's discussing, is what she will be like as a president. She remains something of a black box because she's really been just very close to the president and doesn't necessarily say what she thinks. But she's unlikely to be as powerful as him. First, because she will not have the majorities in the Congress. In 2018, when AMLO was elected, Morena and its allies won a supermajority, and they lost it in 2021, and are unlikely to win it back in 2024, which makes legislating and at least constitutional changes much harder. Second, we know from her term as Mexico City mayor that she's much more pragmatic and technocratic and less aggressive than the president. But having said that, she shares a lot of his ideology, and he is likely to remain close to her. What we do know then is that he'll continue to loom large over the presidency in Mexico. The way he has changed politics will outlast his term. Sarah, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. If I'm on a deadline and I have to get a piece of writing done and I really have to knuckle down and focus to sit there confronted with the horror of the blank page, quite often I will put on some ambient music. Tom Nuttall is a senior editor at The Economist. And the reason that I will do that is because it doesn't have any words, so it's not going to distract me from the words that I'm producing doesn't tend to have patterns of development or exposition that might prove distracting. It's a mood and it's an atmosphere and it's a space for you to work in that if you choose the right stuff, can get you in the sort of zone you need to get into when you're writing the words that you need to write. I'm not alone in this. A lot of people listen to that sort of music, particularly writers like to listen to ambient music. But there's also this growing fascinating phenomenon of 
people, particularly sort of desk-bound workers, maybe like computer programmers or architects, or you know, people who sit at a desk and have to get into like a kind of flow state of just plugging sounds and noises into their ears. And often these noises might be very carefully constructed, sometimes specifically designed to help you get into the right frame of mind to help you work. There's a whole array of apps and websites and all sorts of things designed to help people who need to kind of zone in and really knuckle down and get down to business. Some people find that they can't really work without them. But this also goes way beyond noise. You can find exactly the sort of sound that you need to help you work or relax or whatever else it may be. And for a lot of people, that might not be noise so much as it is sound. One such tool is a website called Ambiphone. It allows you to play and combine various different sounds. So should the specific mood that you need require a blend of, say, whale noises, clattering keyboards and the shipping forecast, then Ambiphone can serve that up. People have found it really useful for studying. I had some people who said it was really good to help and distract from their tinnitus. I'm Matt Eason, I'm a developer, and I built an ambient noise generator called Ambiphone. I had people who said it was really helpful for masking when they were staying in a hotel. And there was some kind of really bassy nightclub downstairs that was going on. Matt originally started developing Ambiphone during the pandemic. And the idea was basically for office workers in particular who were stuck at home and might actually miss the general noise and hubbub and feeling of activity that you get when you're in a typical office. If they had to do the work that they would have been doing in the office but stuck at home in silence then the idea was here was something that could serve you up a kind of ersatz version of that. There might be a certain irony, I suppose, in the fact that now that we're all back in offices again, some people might be using these noises to shut out the noise of the office that they're actually in. So I think there's something nice that comes with putting disparate things together and the kind of spontaneity you get out of that. So I built another website called Ambient Scott Rail Beats. Please join the front 10 coaches of this train. Scott Rail released all of their in-station announcements uh, as a long MP3 file. And then I worked with some other people to split that up and, and transcribe it so we knew what each thing said. An incident on the line. And then I took that and I put it over a, an ambient music feed and just had the announcement playing randomly with a little bit of delay on it, a little bit of sound effect. Midland mainline turbo star, Carmyle. People found it quite comforting and, you know, the, the kind of familiarity of those announcements with the spontaneity of the music. People were feeling some kind of synchronicity between the two things as well, even though it was totally random. Mitchum Eastfields, 16... I'll be honest, this stuff isn't particularly for me. I like listening to music when I work. And the kind of music that I listen to when I work, a lot of the times I mentioned at the beginning, is stuff that falls under the ambient banner. 
And happily, we have just put out a 40-minute podcast devoted to ambient music, what it is, how it came about, how it's used, the musicians that make music under that banner. This is under our Weekend Intelligence strand. So if you're a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus, then you will be able to find that wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't worry, it's completely different from this segment, so you'll be hearing all new material, and I hope you enjoy it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can always drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.